What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with Metro Vancouver Transit funding. TransLink right now has got a very ambitious plan, a lot of big projects, and a lot of big money, too. Who is supposed to pay for this stuff? Where does TransLink get its money right now? Is there a better way to do it? Let's discuss now with my guest, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. He is the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mayor West, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, let's talk first of all about where TransLink gets its money right now. Where does that come from? So primarily comes from property taxes and fuel taxes and then fares uh, that are received from TransLink customers. Uh, Those three sources make up the vast majority of the revenue that uh, TransLink receives. And, uh, you know, you can just go through those and and discuss. I mean, with property taxes, that's not a sustainable funding source. Um, You know, it is getting harder and harder for people to make ends meet. Uh, and the mayors have been very clear that uh, property taxes are not the appropriate source of revenue to to fund uh, public transit and transportation in our region. Fuel taxes, I mean, we all know the price of fuel has been uh, very high over the last uh, number of months, and the reality is that that is, in fact, a declining source of revenue for TransLink because you have more and more people switching to EVs, and that is, again, not going to be a sustainable source of, of revenue for transit in the long run. And then with uh, fares, I mean, you got to be very careful there. You, you obviously want to recoup from the customers who are using the system, but you can't jack it up so high that people say, oh, forget it. It's too expensive. I may as well just drive. So there's a balance that needs to be had there. But uh, a long time ago, that was the system that had been set up. Uh, right. And it's taken us to where we are. But if we want to have a transit and transportation system that this region needs because of its right. growth, those three sources are not going to get the job done, Mike. How much, how much is the, the gas tax for TransLink in Metro Vancouver right now per liter? Uh, so, it, well, there's a, there's a number of uh, levels of government that receive, uh, uh, have, uh, portions of tax on gas and, and Mike I'm not going to get this ex- exactly right but I recall that I have seen upwards of maybe 30 cents a liter well, I, well I, I'm looking sources of well yeah, I think so. like the tra- the TransLink tax right now is 18.5 cents per liter uh, of gasoline uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong there but that is a lot right like when yeah. you gas up your vehicle in Metro Vancouver you're paying the highest gas prices on the continent, and one of the reasons for that is that such a big whack of money goes to TransLink every time you gas up in Metro. So I've heard from people who complain about this all the time, and I know you have too, and they'll say, well, why 
you know, why am I paying for transit if I don't even use it? I mean, that's why I'm gassing up my car. I don't use transit. So why are my, why am I paying a gas tax to go to a transit system that I don't even use? Is that a legit complaint in your mind? No, I, I think it, it is a legitimate concern. And again, you know, this is the system that was devised a long time ago. And, uh, you know, what I'm saying and what the mayors are saying is that it's run its course. Uh, you know, it is not going to be sufficient to fund what we need in, in the future because our region is growing by leaps and bounds and our infrastructure, both transit, transportation, because, by the way, uh, TransLink, although obviously identified with SkyTrain and buses, also uh, helps fund roads as well uh, and bridges yeah. in a lot of our region. So it's all encompassing. And our infrastructure is not keeping up with our population growth. And this is why the mayors are saying the other levels of government have to come to the table, including, by the way, the federal government, who often is not part of this discussion. But the federal government is saying that they are going to set record levels of immigration to this country, yeah. uh, highest yeah. than, that we've ever seen. And we know that uh, people who immigrate to this country primarily locate in three places. And one of those places is Metro Vancouver. So if we're going to see a significant increase in, increase in population in our region, uh, largely attributed to a federal government decision, where are they with the support and the funding to get all of the things we need to support our population? And one of those things is transportation and transit. Well, what would what about the argument though? Like, let's say someone you're saying the Fed should step up and pay more. Well, if someone is living in another part of Canada, if they're living in Alberta or they're living in another province, why should they pay for transit in in Metro Vancouver? You could also make the same same argument provincially. Like I hear you saying the province should step up and pay more too. Well, I mean, if you don't live in Metro Vancouver, why should you know if you live in the north or the interior of the province or Vancouver Island, why should you pay for Vancouver's transit? Well, Mike, we would even it would even be adequate if it was just uh, from the taxes that are paid out of our region. I mean, Metro Vancouver is a uh, a large region. It you know it contains over two thirds of the population of British Columbia. Uh, there's a lot of money that flows out of Metro Vancouver to Victoria and to Ottawa. I'm not saying that someone who lives in Prince George should pay for lower mainland transit system, or someone in Calgary should be. I'm just saying if we could even get our fair share back of the taxes oh. that come out of this region to those levels of government, uh, that would put us uh, much further ahead than we what, are now. What is wrong with using property taxes? Just to go to, back to that for a moment. Like right now, a big chunk of property taxes goes to TransLink, right? What is wrong with that? Well, it, it's not a sustainable uh, formula. I mean, it, it's not going to be adequate. I mean, as you said in the beginning, um, you know, we have a, a plan that is ambitious but achievable. But more than that, it, it, it's responsible. It's a plan that we need uh, to be able to support the the economic activity and the population growth in Metro Vancouver. So every time you need to have a, an expansion of SkyTrain or you need to uh, cover a new area with bus coverage as we grow – you can't keep going back to property taxes. Um, you know, that obviously property taxes are primarily used to fund municipal services. Right. So that's, you know, your parks and your recreation and your community centers and your snow removal and all that sort of stuff. 
So you can't always go to the property owner, the homeowner, and say, oh, okay, well, we're just going to soak you again. Um, you know, and particularly when people are rightly concerned about affordability when it comes to uh, cost of housing, all the rest of it. To me, that's right. not the answer. That, that is not the answer. All right. Talking Metro Vancouver transit funding with Brad West, chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. Right now, most of TransLink's money coming from local taxes. Should other levels of government step up and pay more? Should they raise fares? to pay more. Someone's got to pay for this stuff. Uh, They got a big agenda there at TransLink to expand the system. It's going to cost a lot of money. Zach in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Zach. Go ahead. Um, Hi. I just know that uh, through taxes and through the gas tax of the gas station, we pay for road maintenance and TransLink. But how do people with zero emission vehicles help contribute towards that? That's That's a good point. If you've got an electric vehicle, Brad West, you're not paying gas tax, right? That's correct, and that's why that revenue source is uh, part of the reason why it's forecasted to be a declining source of revenue is because you have an increasing number of people who are switching to EVs, uh, and there is no tax collected, obviously, because they're not using fuel. Right, and the other argument I've heard on that is people will try to justify the gas tax for transit and saying, well, you're actually, okay, you may not use transit, but you're getting a benefit because... It's going to reduce congestion for your commute. Um, it is going to, you know, TransLink is also responsible for maintaining some roads. So it actually is going to help you as a driver. But if you're driving an electric vehicle, and then, then you're getting a free ride, right? That's that's correct. Uh, yeah. No, you're not paying into the system through gas taxes. Yeah. Darren in Richmond on the open line. Hi, Darren. Go ahead. Hi, uh, I just like to wonder why it is that uh, we've been paying a lot of money uh, to ride the ferries because they're operating efficiently and they're making people pay what it costs to actually ride a ferry. Yet, yet we don't do that for buses and SkyTrain. They get away with a cheap ride. And uh, we pay all these taxes, gas taxes, uh, extra taxes here and there to ride transit. Yet the ferry corporation, part of TransLink, make people pay so the, so the ferry corporation run at a balanced budget. They don't run into debt all the time. Okay, well, I don't, you know, I think BC Ferries receives a provincial subsidy, so it's not directly funded 100% by fares, but Mayor West, go ahead, your thoughts. Yeah, that, that's correct. So ferries, of course, separate from TransLink, that's a provincial uh, yeah. uh, agency, Crown Corporation. Uh, and you're right, Mike, um, it is subsidized by provincial taxpayers as well. Yeah, for sure. Keep phoning me on this. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. John in Kelowna. Hi, John. Go ahead. Good morning. Yeah, a year ago, my wife and I moved up here from Vancouver. We are in a house 35 years. I just got tired of this TransLink bureaucracy. It is so much of a gas uh, gouge. I think they have heard for many decades, user pay fees, user pay fees. I should include people on bicycles going to Stanley Park. They should pay a fee like cars have to pay to park. And Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley, my recreation is dirt biking. That road's never been widened. It should have been widened 30 years ago. And there should have been a light rail transit system going straight down through the Newport Man Bridge out to the valley. These kinds of bureaucracies where every mayor is tugging at the money string because they want their little dream model train set all set up. What they need to do is stop the uh, money of TransLink saying, oh, we're responsible for roads, 
bridges and public transit. Well, there's an argument right there. They're putting all the okay. money into transit, nothing for the roads, and that's why motorists are angry at bicycles and angry at everything because we're paying. Okay. And one more point, if yeah. Okay, well, let me go. Let me go to the mayor here in the, in the interest of time. Mayor West, like, so he was complaining about bureaucracy at TransLink. Do you think there's a lot of bureaucracy and fat at TransLink? No, I don't. I think that it's a it's an organization that's pretty right sized for the job that it has to do. Uh, you know, the costs that we're talking about are, are not because it's about, you know, um, empl- employing a bunch of people to push paper. Uh, it's about, you know, big projects to provide service to the people of this region. I mean, that, that's where the costs are associated with. These are obviously very large uh, projects, uh, and then it costs money to operate the service as well. Uh, you know, but this is, you know, not a pie in the sky stuff. This is what we need. As a region, I mean, you go and if, you know, if people have had the opportunity of travel to different uh, parts of North America, I mean, you experience uh, different systems in different places. And, you know, if we're going to be a serious region, we need an adequate uh, public transportation system. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, And the growth is going to continue to come. The population uh, is continuing to come. And, you know, yeah. you want to talk about congestion. I mean, if we don't start making some of these investments and, you know, and getting ahead instead of always being behind the eight ball, which is what it feels like when it comes to infrastructure, um, you know, those things are going to get even worse and our quality of life is going to decline as a result. Okay. And so okay. that's why this is important. Mayor West, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks very much for having me. talk about Canada's oil and gas sector now. Climate change groups stepping up their campaigns against Canadian energy production, especially the oil sands in Alberta. And supporters of Canadian oil and gas, though, say Canada's oil is way better than foreign oil from countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia because we have better environmental uh, restrictions and oh by the way we also have better human rights records than these other countries got a great panel standing by to discuss this have a listen to alberta conservative mp rachel thomas here speaking in the house of commons this industry has the highest environmental standards in the world when it's developed here in canada and then hold on let's talk about another thing too let's talk about the fact that it's ethically produced We have ethics in this country, folks. It's amazing. The same cannot be said for Saudi Arabia. The same cannot be said for Russia. So while this government would prefer to prop up those true dictatorships, I certainly do not. This is that ethical oil debate, right? Environmental activists not buying it. Have a listen to anti-oil sands activist Naomi Klein here. He compared the tar sands oil to um, fair trade coffee and free range chickens? Do you know that they're running ads on the Oprah network uh, saying that by buying tar sands oil you're helping to free women in Saudi Arabia? I mean, I'm from Canada and let me tell you something, we don't have ethical oil in Canada. We have tar sands oil which is like regular oil but a whole lot dirtier. 
Okay, we've got a great panel on this now. We've got both sides of it for you. Ryan Fournier on the line. Ryan is a student at the University of Ottawa. He is a member of Young Canadians for Resources. Ryan, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike, for having me. You bet. Peter McCartney, also on the line, climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee in Vancouver. Hi, Peter. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for the invite. Okay, thanks, guys, for doing this. Ryan, let me go to you first. I've been checking out your website here, Young Canadians for Resources here. Tell me the message of your group. Uh, So the message of our group largely is to promote ethically produced Canadian energy and Canadian resources over authoritarian or unreliable and less friendly, less clean resource models that are seen right now dominating uh, the market trade. Okay, so it's the ethical oil argument. Peter, what do you think of that argument? Oh, I think it's just a, a, a bunch of bollocks. Like, uh, you know, ethical by what standard? Environmentally friendly by what standard? Because our oil is the only oil that you have to boil out of the sand in order to create actual crude. And that means that the carbon emissions of our oil are higher than most other places on the planet. Um, it also means in the Tartans, you know, the cancer rates of Indigenous communities who live nearby these projects are higher than elsewhere in the province. And so, you know, I don't... Are you considering this ethical to poison the people that live nearby these um, these Tartans projects? It's, it's an industry talking point that has been frustratingly stubborn. Um, but the other side of this coin is that Our oil is also the most expensive, and I don't see anyone around the world, you know, willing to pay double the price at the pump in order to get, you know, Canada oil. Um, So I I don't see the the logic of, you know, when we export our oil, all of a sudden Russia and Saudi Arabia and all these other countries um, are going to have to cut back. It just doesn't make sense. Ryan, what do you say to that? Thanks again, Mike, for having me and Peter for... uh coming on uh, I think it's important to get student voices out there on conversations that matter in relation to our future uh, I believe we are actors and innovators of a new and better future and that's why I along with 99 other students have pledged to choose Canadian energy not war oil and it has amassed over 7.5 thousand supporters across Canada and we started this campaign because we really care about human rights and environmental protection and sustainable future. And therefore, we care about making sure the world's vital energy supply comes from Canada and not depending on authoritarian and war-funding oil sources. I can't understand how Peter disagrees that when we talk about energy, which comes from Canada and compare it with Venezuela, Iran, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the most oppressive and climate-destroying producers on Earth, I think it's clear. Energy has to come from Canada. Canadian energy is the answer, not the problem. Let's have an honest discussion on global energy demand and market dependencies on cheap, unethical, and abusive oil producers and regimes. These protests by Peter and his friends to shut down Canadian pipelines have only helped countries like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Russia monopolize and weaponize their oil and gas markets. Peter, what do you say to that? It's, I mean, it's of course, um, it, it's, it doesn't make sense. You know, if, if we are exporting Canadian oil, what Russian refinery is shutting down 
because, mm-hmm. you know, a pipeline got built in Canada. It's not a thing. Um, no matter how much Ezra Levant and the oil backers want to make it a thing. But the truth is, young people, by and large in this country, with the exception of, of you know, Ryan's small group, a million young people marched in the street across this country three years ago demanding action on climate change. We understand that the world is moving away from oil and gas, and the sooner it does, the better. And so I do think that, you know, uh, for, for young people who are looking at a career in the future, um, to be looking at oil and gas is like being a farrier in the early 1900s, you know, making horseshoes. It's, um, <laughs> people okay. can understand that this industry doesn't have a future. Ryan, what do you say to that? Like when you talk to other university students, you're at the University of Ottawa, you're part of this students group that supports Canadian oil and gas. Do you feel like you're in the minority there on campus? Absolutely not. Let me tell Peter that oil and gas demand is going up and students see that. New oil production for the next year is going to Qatar and Venezuela. So when you're saying that somehow shutting down Canadian energy is to send these deals elsewhere to less friendly and less clean producers. That is just a lie. Pipeline protests hurt global sustainability and equitable prosperity for all, which makes it harder to get the world off of war oil. Canada, as the third largest producers with some of the most democratic values on planet Earth, are being restricted, and thus the world is forced to buy Russian and Saudi. We are seeing what, it right now. What about, hey, Ryan, what about... What about Peter's point, though, that Canadian oil is very expensive compared to these other countries? And, you know, wh- why would anyone in the world buy more expensive oil if they can buy it cheaper from Russia or these other or Saudi Arabia? Honestly, that that makes sense in what he's saying. But the fact is that young people don't support uh, human rights abuse. We support yeah. equality. We support environmental sustainability. And that's not possible if we put the future of our climate and energy security in the hands of dictators and authoritarians. Students are pro-choosing Canadian energy over oppressive and environment-destroying energy sources. This isn't okay. about profits. This is about Canadian values that we stand for, free speech and expression, the freedom to love who you want to love, a country that respects its workers and treats them with dignity. That is not seen in Qatar and Venezuela, where these deals are now going to. Peter, what do you say to that? You know, I agree. I think young people do support human rights all over the world. And human rights are trampled by the fossil fuel industry wherever it takes place. They are trampled in northern Alberta and they are trampled in uh, Venezuela, Russia, Nigeria, Everywhere that fossil fuel companies can throw their weight around and and, and corrupt politicians, um, we see that people on the ground pay the price. But the biggest threat to human rights in the world is climate change. You cannot separate um, the ability for people to live safely in their communities uh, from their fundamental human rights as people. And so... um, you are right that we have to get off Russian and Qatari and, and Venezuelan oil. And the best way to do that is to get off of oil. And we're, okay. the good news is that we're doing it. Um, you know, and, and as far as the student uh, angle goes, you know, the UFC paused admissions on their um, petroleum engineering program because of five years of declining uh, enrollment. And so I think that just goes to show you that young people know which way the puck is skating on this one and, Uh, They know how to get out ahead of it.
All right. Welcome back as we continue our oil and gas debate. My guests are Ryan Fournier, Young Canadians for Resources, Peter McCartney at the Wilderness Committee. Phone lines are open 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Dev on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Hey, uh, Mike. First of all, Ryan, I'm really proud of you. Uh, Thank you for showing us that you have the ability to think to ask questions and not to buy into this narrative. The person you're debating, Peter, he came on this radio once and told us how great Nigeria is. So if, if someone is, uh, is telling us how great Nigeria is and, and is not criticizing human rights abuses in Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Iran, that should tell you all you need to know. But good Okay, let's let, let's let Peter defend himself. Peter, go ahead. I'm sure Nigeria is a beautiful country. Um, The human rights are important, whether they're the human rights of indigenous people in Canada to self-determination and make uh, making decisions about what happens on the territories they've stewarded for generations. Um, And they're also important all over the world. And so uh, I, I think actually there's there's an element of racism in the idea that, you know, those those other countries are are treating people poorly and and we are um, all all somehow saints. I I think that uh, we need to examine every country's human rights record properly and uh, and speak up whenever we can. Okay, Paul on the line in South Surrey. Hi, Paul, go ahead. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. I think, Peter, that um, for all your good measure, I think uh, most Canadians like yourself, especially young Canadians, are fickle and they're distracted. I think you don't really understand geopolitical uh, assets that you, you, you claim to. Russia has weaponized energy. Our allies in Europe have begged us to assist them with distributing uh, our, our oil and gas. It benefits Canada to a great deal. I mean, look at BC. They have a $6 billion surplus this year. Undoubtedly, you, your groups, your environmental groups, will have their hand out to David Eby, asking him for money. Where do you think that comes from? How do you okay. think people in the north get educated and better jobs for their life? Right? They want. Yeah, let me give Peter. Let me give Peter. Let me give. Let me give Peter a chance. Peter, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, Europe's response to Russian correctly weaponizing, or you're correct that they are weaponizing fossil fuels. Europe's response has been to get off of fossil fuels and redouble their efforts to uh, have climate action. There is absolutely nothing Canada can do to get liquefied natural gas over to Europe in the timeline that, you know, this war uh, is taking place on. And so um, I, it's very clear that, uh, that Europe is, is choosing to get off of fossil fuels as fast as possible. I don't know why we would um, invest time and energy and money into um, building new infrastructure that's going to be obsolete by the time it's finished. Okay, let me give Ryan a turn. Ryan Fournier, go ahead, your thoughts. All right. Well, I just want to say I agree with both of the callers. I mean, students and young people have been misled by many of these groups like Peters who ignore the bigger picture. Young Canadians support human rights and the environment, as well as a viable economic future for themselves and their family. We say yes to everything and to sustainable resource development, which benefits Canadian families. The opposite of this is Peters rhetoric of shut it all down, saying no to the most responsibly produced energy in the world and instead ignoring where the energy will come from in substitution. That's insane and helps no one. We cannot shut down oil and gas, as Peter says, and that is demonstrably false. 
We need all of the above in terms of energy for generations to come. Why shouldn't okay. it come from one of the world's largest producing with highest standards of human rights and environmental protection? Back to the calls. Paul in South Surrey. Oh, sorry. I, let me go to the next call. Chris in Langley. Hi, Chris. Hi. I just want to ask Peter what his solution is. What uh, what sustainable, affordable replacement for oil and gas do you have? Because we can't change over until we have a plan, a Peter. viable. Yeah, Peter, what do you say to that? It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that there, there are tons of people studying this, and um, electric vehicles, uh, batteries for them are getting cheaper every year. Um, but, yeah, they are still expensive, and so we should be uh, giving everyone who possibly can the opportunity to take transit um, or, or cycle and, and walk around their communities, building dense, walkable communities so that people can get around with their daily needs without using fossil fuels. Um, it, when it comes to the gas you burn in your home, heat pumps, uh, once you install them, are cheaper to run than, uh, than the fracked gas that you're currently receiving. Uh, it's cheaper to build homes without a gas line. And so, you know, with the, with the largely renewable and, and clean energy that Canada has, uh, we can do all the things we need to do with fossil fuels um, or we currently do with fossil fuels, we can do with renewable energy. Okay. And that's the way to do this. It's affordable. The only thing missing is the uh, political leadership to get it done. Ryan Fournier, r- running out of time. So, Ryan, you're going to the last word here. you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Peter seems to just say no and takes the easy way out and says shut down everything when you should join young people on a path to get something done the right way. He's not telling the full story. Everything you are wearing today, Peter, came from a truck that came from asphalt, across asphalt. Even the signs for your protests are accessible because of oil and gas and Canadian forestry. We need Canadian solutions. That's okay. my final words. Okay, Peter, well, we got, okay, Peter, I'll give you a quick response. Go ahead. You know, scientists tell us that these climate disasters that we're seeing only keep getting worse until we stop burning fossil fuels. So the sooner the better, and we can do it. We have all the technology we need. Let's talk about holiday scams and ripoffs online. There are so many of them out there. I mean, how often do you see something pop up in your email or on your any kind of social media platform that you're on, your text messages? You're getting these scams all the time. Now, I find them fairly simple to, to spot. You know, the old saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. But they're getting more sophisticated, too, like setting up fake websites that look like the real thing. And when they offer you a bargain, especially at this time of year, a lot of people will fall for it. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Claudio Popa. Claudio is the founder of Knowledge Flow Cyber Safety Foundation. He's the author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Claudio, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Okay, you bet. So this must be, what, the best time of year for online scammers and fraudsters, is it? Oh, this is this is the big time. This is what yeah. they uh, study for all year long. Everything else is practice. Yeah, yeah, because everyone's looking for that bargain, right? So let's talk about some of the uh, the scams out there. What are some of the more common ones that you're seeing that you think people should be aware of? 
Well, you, you mentioned a couple. Uh, one is the fake websites. The, the thing that's changed this year, and I'm, I think I'm going to focus on, on some of the biggest changes that we've seen this year. Uh, first of all, uh, we think that we can tell a fake site, and, and by and large, most of us can. But what we need to keep in mind in order to, to continue being able to tell the difference is that, first of all, we hear about these little locks at the top of the screen, you know, the little lock that tells us that it's a digital certificate, the site is safe and secure, it's all encrypted. Guess what? Criminals now have access to those little locks, so they're not oh. going to put up websites that don't have locks. So I wouldn't bother too much uh, looking for uh, trust in those locks, right? They, they've got them. Uh, the websites are exact copies of the sites that you love and trust. And what's worse, criminals are now outspending retailers on Google ads and, vari- and a variety of other search engines, which means if you're looking for a deal and you search for it, chances are the fraudulent sites are going to pop up ahead of, on top of, and before the legitimate ones. So keep an eye oh. out for that. And the general recommendation here is to never click on ads of any kind. It's usually clickbait anyway, but you you should be able to block ads using um, an ad blocker like Adblock Plus, for example, that's that's completely free. So that's uh, that's a big one for me because that's completely different from things that we've seen in years past. Okay, now let me ask you about a couple of those because I think you've raised some really, really interesting points. So let's go back to that that lock icon and people will be familiar with this like if you go on any major website so i'm looking at the global news website right now on my screen and it has that that lock icon right at the top of the browser near the you know the the website address it's got that little lock there what is that lock supposed to mean it's supposed to mean it's a secure site correct yeah that, that lock basically means that the connection between your computer and the server is encrypted so that if you have to buy anything or fill out an online form, the data is scrambled, your privacy is assured. When you see a lock like that, it always means that it's encrypted, even when criminals put up the lock. It simply means that your data is encrypted from your computer to the criminal's computer. So it's no longer that meaningful. Okay, so now, so now, when you look at that lock, it doesn't mean it's not, a, it's not a fake or a fraudulent site. It could still be. It could, the lock could be there. That icon could be there, but it's still a scam site, potentially. That's exactly it. So both yeah. scam sites and legitimate sites have access to the little lock. You should yeah. always look for the little <laughs> lock. Don't deal with sites that don't have a lock, but don't right. necessarily assume that just because it has a lock, it's not fraudulent. Okay. And the other one you mentioned there about Google search results. I mean, this is what everyone is uses this, this web search engine all the time. You know, I do it multiple times every day, like everyone, everyone else does. And typically, if you're searching for a company and you Google it, it's usually the first thing that comes up, right? Like there's an algorithm there. Like aren't the, aren't the real sites, the legit sites supposed to come up first on your search results? Well, uh, they are if search engines can tell the difference, but in many cases, search engines cannot tell the difference between a legit site and one that is a complete fraud. So uh, what's worse is that that type of checking, that intelligent, that AI 
uh, mechanism is typically bypassed when you pay the company to list your site. <laughs> so you show up with a bag of money, you throw it at the search engine, and they say, okay, how many ads would you like? And uh, the more ads you purchase, the higher up you show up. So, I mean, there is a theoretical possibility that your Amazon.scam site could show up above the Amazon.ca that's a legitimate site if you are uh, willing to invest enough in your holiday cybercrime spree. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, this is getting this is getting tricky. These scammers are getting smarter. You know, they're getting more sophisticated. Like some of these sites that are set up, too, they are slick, right? Like they look real. They look like the real deal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're indistinguishable from the real thing for one good reason. They're an exact copy. You you can copy any website on the Internet and host it anywhere you like. You can go and get a domain name that looks very legit. Um, You can uh, you can um, uh, bypass people's. uh, People's ability to tell the difference by simply paying for ads inside of social media. So inside of social media, instead of advertising a website, what you do if you're a criminal or an unscrupulous fraudster is you come up with a contest. And the contest offers something that's irresistible. You know, they used to offer things like lunch with the rock or a Hummer (laughs) or whatever. That kind of nonsense anyone can, can ignore. But if it's something that already is uh, relevant to your search results, and keep in mind that your search results are available to advertisers on any social media platform. So when you are willing to pay for advertising, the social media platform tells you, well, who would you like to reach? Well, I'd like to reach 65 uh, people who are 65 and over and looking for, you know, a home fitness uh, product. Um, so they're already desensitized to that kind of messaging and they're a lot more likely to click on it. So they don't, there's no thinking about whether a site is real or not. They just see it right on their, um, instant messaging or social media platform. Yeah. Oh man. These scammers are just getting, uh, smarter and smarter every day. It seems speaking to Claudio Popa, author of the Canadian cyber fraud handbook, talking about holiday scams to watch out for claudio what about gift cards when uh, these are very popular gift items a lot of people it's an easy kind of time saver gift to buy people i guess love getting them typically although sometimes i forget forget about them and don't use them which is annoying but um th- those are a source of scams and ripoffs too right absolutely uh, gift cards uh, so those are a little bit um uh they pivot every year so i if you if you YouTube me, I've got various gift card uh, tips for the past few years on on a variety of TV, uh, national TV channels. And this year, they've pivoted again. They used to use all these complex copying machines for gift cards. Now they don't do that anymore. Now they just steal entire stacks of these um, cards that haven't been activated yet. And they steal them from two different stores. And then they swap the barcodes so that oh. <laughs> so that they when they return them to the stores, they have each other's 
barcodes and the two different types of stores. It might be the LCBO. It, it might be uh, a toy store. When people end up buying the cards that the criminals have put back on the shelf, they activate them either on the spot or at home. The criminal then goes in and sees that the card has been activated and empties it because the criminal has recorded all of those uh, card numbers before putting them back on the shelf, which is particularly crafty, and we have not seen that before. Oh, my goodness. That is... That is next level kind of scamming. Yeah, wow. Is. Wow. It, it certainly it certainly beats trying to email people and tell them to run to the store and buy gift cards for you. Um yeah. we've seen that kind of stuff all year with phishing emails that simply ask employees to uh to run to the store because you know you're pretending to be the CEO and and they need to buy a few dozen of those cards. And of course, people get suspicious. This way, people have no reason to be suspicious. They simply go to the store, they grab the cards, and they can't tell that the barcodes have been glued and almost imperceptibly glued to the cards. So that's going to be an industry-wide issue. And um, I don't see a, a solution but to put the cards inside of boxes in future years. It's a little bit late for this year, but it's all going to add to, you know, packaging costs and generally the, the cost of products. Uh, overall. Yeah. It's, I, I, I was just, I was going to ask, like, how do you, how do you protect yourself against something like that? Like right now, if you go into, you know, London drugs or any store, you'll see these gift cards just hanging up on a rack usually. And you just mm-hmm. pick one, pick them out yourself. Like, They'll have to put them in some sort of secure container. Maybe they should be kept behind the behind the counter or something. Like, how do you stop that? So, first of all, all retailers should keep them behind the counter. The reason they don't is because it increases salience. It it makes it more likely that people will just pick them up on their way out, and they don't want to lose those sales. If you hide them, yeah. people won't think of it. Um, but as far as what consumers need to do, is they need to run their finger over the barcode when they purchase these cards. And if they're the scratchy kind, you want to obviously make sure that it hasn't been tampered with. But if they've got a barcode, you want to run your finger over them and check that it's not a sticker. And if it is a Uh sticker, then you know it's fake and you report it to the store and they'll, they'll take away all the cards because obviously they can't trust any of them. But if you fail to do that, the people that you give the cards to are so much more likely to be disappointed when they receive these cards and they're empty, right? So it's a it's a big issue, and I feel bad for all the kids and very various family members out there who receive these these worthless cards because they were literally emptied the day that they were purchased. Yeah, oh yeah, man, some Grinch has uh, swapped out your barcode. That that is not a very nice surprise to get at Christmas time. That's wow. right. Claudio, thank you for coming on with your expertise today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Hit and run accidents. Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever witnessed an accident, a collision, and then the at-fault driver just takes off? I want to hear your story on that if that's happened to you. Get set to call me. How about this one now? You park your car, and when you return to your vehicle, oh, my God, my car is damaged. Someone hit my car and took off. 
I saw one yesterday. I witnessed this yesterday. I could not believe what I saw this driver do. Hit and run. And talk to you about it. Talk about it now with my guest Grant Gottgetrue. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He's now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com. Hey, Grant. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Okay, I'll, let me tell the story here real quickly. I'll get your thoughts. So this happened yesterday. After we finished the show yesterday, I'm driving home from the studio. I always take the same route home. Now, there's this guy driving in front of me, Grant. He was in like a kind of a, a green sort of later model, uh, older model Volvo. And I'm watching this guy, and it was kind of weird. He wasn't weaving erratically or anything like that, but he was just driving very close to the right in the right lane or the right curb. Like he was too far to the right. He wasn't in the center of the lane. So he's mm-hmm. too far to the right. He's kind of driving close to the curb. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to keep a close eye on this guy and see what this guy's going to do. Now we're going along and we start coming out to some parked cars. So there's some parked cars on the right side. And I thought, <laughs> I hope this guy is going to move over to the middle of the lane here because he's going to be he's he's heading right for this parked car. Okay, and then I watched it. It's almost like I, I watched this in slow motion the way it unfolded. He gets to this car and he almost slams into the back of this vehicle. Came so close, and I would estimate like less than an inch. He's just skimming the side of this parked car. And then, of course, he gets to the rear view mirror on this car, which is sticking out, and bam, he just destroys this rear view mirror. It just explodes into pieces on the road, shatters all over the road. And so, like, part of it was like hanging by a wire off the side of this car. So, severely damages this car, keeps on trucking. He just kept going, didn't stop, didn't even slow down. And I thought, you kidding me? And this happened right in front of me. You're not even, you just hit a car and you don't even, you don't even slow down. You just keep going. So what I did, Grant, see if you think, if you think I did the right thing here, I followed this car for a couple of blocks. I, I managed to snap a photo of the license plate number. And then I went back to this damaged car, all the parts of this damn, this shattered windshield or rear view mirror lying all over the road still. And I left a note on the windshield of this car saying, hey, I saw this. I've got the license plate number of the guy who hit your car. Call me if you need to call me. And you know what? I still haven't heard from the this car, the owner of this car yet, but I suspect I will. Grant, what do you think of that? Yeah, you did. You actually, what you did is what the other driver should have done. <laughs> if you put yeah, a car yeah. in the car, you have to leave a note. But yeah, no, what you did was right. And of course... You, you um, you can also follow up with uh, with ICBC and give them that information as well, and then they'll flag it for when the uh, the victim vehicle comes in and makes their claim. They can go, hey, we we know who hit your car, this guy, so they can go after him. The ICBC how, can. So, how common is that? You've had a long career in sort of traffic law enforcement, and now you're a, co- a consultant. You testify in court a lot. Like how how common is that? It's very prevalent. Uh, obviously, most of the hit and runs occur in in, in parking lots, uh, and uh, you know there are certain responsibilities that a driver has when they're involved in a collision, either with uh, uh, a, a vehicle that's occupied, an unoccupied vehicle, or property. And then, of course, the, the most extreme end would be criminal code. 
uh, hit and run, uh, which doesn't happen very often. Um, because Crown, my experience was Crown Council wouldn't go with a criminal code hit and run unless there was some really um, aggravating circumstances along with it. So a uh, situation like what you just described there, um, extremely unlikely that I see yeah. that, uh, that criminal because they want something more substantive than just a broken side view mirror. Well, exa- yeah, exactly. I mean, the, hap- the happy part of this story is that nobody was injured. You know, it was a pedestrian wasn't hit. There was no one yeah. in this parked vehicle when it got hit. So nobody yeah. was hurt. So in a situation okay. like this, it could have been worse. But I just thought, you know, how how the heck can you hit a car like that with that kind of force and then just not even notice it? I don't know. Or just keep driving, like pretend it didn't happen. There's when something- no doubt in anybody's mind that that driver knew exactly uh, that he hit that car. He just yeah. he just didn't want to stop and 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 face uh, increase uh, in uh, in his premiums, which is just silly, you know. But that's exactly what it is. It's like you don't want to get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. What happens when, like you mentioned, that a, a place where this might more commonly happen is in a parking lot? And I can certainly understand how you could certainly have an accident or in a parking lot. What happens if um, typically in a case like that, you've got a hit and run, a car has been damaged, someone else is at fault, they've left the scene. Can they check like video surveillance? Is that typical? It wasn't unusual, especially when I worked in uh, in West Van at uh, Park Royal to have all these type of calls that would come in. And, and invariably the damage to the victim vehicle, I'm using air quotes here, victim vehicle, was very minor and superficial. Um, and if there was a license plate of the vehicle that struck them, then it was just simply refer them both to ICBC because, I mean, if the damage was that minor, then the chances of the other motorist even knowing they hit almost impossible to prove. So it would be basically refer both parties to, to ICBC. But video surveillance, yes, but, you know, the license plate is what's going to get you the best yeah. results for Would you say that structure. A lot of these type of things might go unsolved. Like, I wonder how many people who might return to their car, they've noticed a, like a scratch or a dent in their vehicle that someone's done to them and the offending vehicle is nowhere to be seen and you're just out of luck. I mean, your car has been damaged and the, oh, and the person who did yeah. it is just long gone. I had that happen to my personal vehicle when I worked at the integrated road safety unit. <laughs> it was parked at the, in the parkade in Langley there and I came out to my car my personal car and someone crunched my quarter panel and, and uh, I never found out who did it. So I think it's quite common for you to come out to your vehicle and go, what the heck happened here? And you never know who did it. All right. Talking hit and run accidents with Grant Gottgetrue. I witnessed one of these myself yesterday. Lots of calls. Let's go to Steve on the line in Surrey. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. Good, good. Um, I actually just found the letter from ICBC that was mailed to me. I witnessed a woman in an old caravan hit a brand new Lexus SUV in the parking lot at um, a strip mall at 90, um, 96 and 128th in Surrey. And as she hit it, she got out and looked at it, looked at her vehicle, looked around, and she started to back away. Well, when she backed away, her tire hit the part of the curb in the parking lot and blew the tire out. So I walked over. and says, "Hey, I just seen you hit that vehicle." They know no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I says, "Yeah, you did." And then you backed up, and you know what? You're not going nowhere because you got a flat tire now. So she she tried her damnedest to drive away, but she couldn't. And she had two little kids in the van. Anyhow, 
long story short, I took her license plate number, I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and instead of sticking it on the windshield wiper, I stuck it in the gas door and had a little bit of it hanging out. Um, Subsequently, um, it was a manager of a bakery in uh, the strip mall there. She came out after her shift, and she's seen the note. She phoned me, and I told her what happened and all that. Long story short, she phoned ICBC. Um, They investigated. The woman said it wasn't her, it wasn't her. But I gave a Mm. complete description of her. And long story short, uh, she was caught. And ICBC sent me a nice letter thanking me for um, doing something that a lot of people don't do. Okay, thank you for that, Steve. I think that's uh, you did the right thing there. I think you did your, your civic duty. And I guess, Grant, that's kind of a case of karma there. You hit this car, you want to, you're thinking about taking off, it appears, and then you, you end up with a flat. Your thoughts? How many times have you and I talked about how inconsiderate motorists are out there, right? Whether it be uh, people still yammering on their phones or left lane hogs out on Highway 1. So this really doesn't surprise me. People are just so... Uh, self-absorbed and so inconsiderate they just like i said they I mean good for her that's that's bad karma coming together as it should be. yeah i mean i guess human nature being what it is sometimes you get into you make a mistake you're in an accident and people might think is there any way i can get out of this here so i can i can understand how how this happens ross in vancouver hi ross uh, good morning how are you doing i'm good go ahead excellent well one day i'm driving down marine drive heading west near the old do a car lot that used to be there and this lady pulls out on the road smashes in the side of my pickup truck as we're driving so i follow her going down marine mm. drive heading east and i lost sight of her so i pull into this gas station and lo and behold there's this lady filling up a oh. car with gas that hit my pickup truck oh so i took pictures of her license plates pictures of her and then i called the vancouver police and at the same time, when I'm talking to her, I says, you know, you're going to be charged with hit and run here. Mm. And I guess her Canadian wasn't that great. And she just took off. Three days later, they found her car in that in Richmond. She was from a different country driving her friend's car. And they got charged with hit and run. Hit and run. I'm driving. Oh, okay. She drives right into me. Okay. Thank you for that, Ross. Okay. You mentioned earlier, Grant, that. Like, is hit and run an actual charge under the criminal code, or is it the Motor Vehicle Act? Well, they call it fail to remain, but basically it's the same thing. I mean, in a case like what he described there, I mean, that could be criminal because we're talking about an actual uh, obvious collision uh, where the person took off. Um, The parameters for criminal code is to escape criminal or civil liability. Well, that's pretty well any fail to remain case but in one of those cases there like what that caller just described that would be a really good example to me of something that could go criminally if you can identify the other driver and he's got photographs so that would uh that to me would pass the test of a criminal matter Mm. jack and asoyas hi jack go ahead hi mike and your guest Uh, i was picking up a uh, patient from vancouver general hospital a couple of christmases ago and I come back out with the patient. The uh, and the my vehicle, a Honda CRV, had been um, backed into, pushed back about 18 inches and up onto a sidewalk, and the vehicle is gone. My process with ICBC was stunning. I used this vehicle to tow behind a motorhome. 
they accused me of backing my motorhome into my CRV. Oh. Now, who would back a motorhome that costs a half a million bucks into a $20,000 CRV? And, and then it went on and on. And finally, I realized I had been visiting somebody earlier that morning, and there was video surveillance where they live. And I got a picture, and then it still took a couple of months for ICBC to finally come around and see it. So, you know, it's just preposterous the way that, uh, that you're treated. Then I had to pay the deductible on it. In huh. spite of the fact that somebody hit hit me and fled. <laughs> okay, thank you for that, Jack Grant. Have you ever heard of that before? Like ICBC doesn't believe your hit and run story. Well, you blame them. <laughs> I mean, how many yeah, well, people snow ICBC, right? So, um, I think they've got. I will. I will rarely um, say anything supportive of ICBC, but in that case, I would say, yeah, there's obviously, uh, they're always going to have a raised eyebrow in certain circumstances and, and good for, uh, good for that fella for, uh, getting the video out, but we're always stuck with paying our deductible. That's just the way it is. Tyler in the NIMO. Tyler, go ahead. Hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, just a quick thing here. Um, what happens if say you're in a v- in your car and uh, you're on a bicycle and you get hit and the driver fails to produce a driver's license or refuses to? I mean, is that considered a hit and run? Grant. <clears throat> well, that's something that you can follow up with either the police or with ICBC. As long as you've got photographs, I mean, you're going to have your phone on you, right? There's a, there are some gray areas when it comes to cyclists um, and private property. Um, but, uh, the best course of action is if you're going to deal with someone who's uncooperative like that, the first question is why, why is that motorist doing that? Right. Um, so photos on your phone, the best way to go and then just follow it up with the police. Would you, would you say Grant, Grant, we just got 30 seconds left here, but would you say like the, the best primary advice is to phone the police if you're in an accident and document everything as well as you can? Uh, if the damage is significant, if it's a minor damage, like a scratch or a minor dent, just go to ICBC. Yeah. Don't waste the police time with something like that. Right. right. But, would you, but take photos is probably smart. Absolutely. Photos, as many photos as you can of the other vehicle and the other yeah. driver. Hey, Grant, thanks for coming on today. Anytime, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh- Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.